Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome very much to the Disordering the Intimacies of Four Continents Roundtable. Um, so my name is Mira Sabaratnam. And for those of you unfamiliar, um, this, um, this roundtable is brought to you by members of a blog collective. And the blog is The, the Disorder of Things, which um, turned 10 years old this month. Uh, the Disorder of Things is a blog which a few of us started. Yay, everyone shake their hands, um, which a few of us started um, when we were PhD students at the LSE in the International Relations Department. Um, and it's been uh, for the relentless criticism of all things and conditions hitherto existing uh, for all of that time. Um, and we wrote a lot and then we wrote a bit less and the disorder of things has grown and become a different kind of thing. But um, it's a space in which uh, people we love and respect and enjoy spending time with get to spend time with each other. And so uh, it's a real pleasure to be chairing this event with my co-bloggers, who I see less and less since we used to sit in the pubs in the LSE uh, back in the day. Anyway, so welcome to all of you and thanks for coming to this roundtable. We are delighted to be discussing uh, Lisa Lowe's book, The Intimacies of Four Continents. Uh, and Lisa is here in the audience, uh, which is wonderful. And we hope very much to be uh, uh, have her as part of the discussion. Um, and uh, we turn to this book for many reasons. And I'll just maybe say a couple why. Um, the Disorder of Things has always been... I suppose, fascinated with the global, fascinated with thinking critically about the global um, from whatever projects we were involved in. And this Millennium Conference around the subject of entanglements um, immediately triggered uh, this book in terms of our thinking about it. And I reached out to fellow contributors to ask whether they'd be interested, and they all said yes. Um, I'll let them get underway in a second, but before I do that, I just wanted to show you this um, memorial, which is in London, which I think speaks very much to the book. Um, uh, Lisa mentions uh, Prince Albert in her book, and this is the memorial built to him by Queen Victoria following his death. It's right opposite the Royal Albert Hall in South Kensington. And um, for those of you that don't know it, please go along because it, it is a fantastic allegory of the imaginary of British Empire, of Western civilization, of all of those things. Um, so these bottom four outer plinths are, in fact, the four continents um, of Lisa Lowe's book, Europe, America, Africa and Asia. And they are bound together uh, in the inner plinth with agriculture, commerce, manufacturing, and so on. Um, of course, the um, royal prince, the uh, recently deceased royal prince, is embodied in gold in the middle of it, and it's all topped with a um, sign of the cross. And so if you want to see an embodiment of these, of these four continents and their intimacies, I recommend uh, having a look at the Albert Memorial if you get to walk through London at some point soon or not so soon. All right, so the format of this roundtable is that each of our contributors um, is going to uh, say a little bit by way of summary of uh, the chapters of the book, just to give an um, entry point into those for those who have not had the uh, pleasure of reading it yet. And then we'll go around for comments and discussions and so on. Um, so, uh, without further ado, I would like to uh, welcome Paul Kirby, uh, very much one of the um, 
driving, energising forces between the, behind the Disorder of Things blog uh, to talk to us about the introduction. Paul. Thanks, Mira. So I think we're going to spend about a minute each talking about these, uh, these key chapters before we go to the wider discussion. So chapter one, the intimacies of four continents, in which we are introduced to the stakes of the book, which seeks to analyse European liberalism, settler colonialism, the Atlantic slave trade, and the transition from mercantilist to free trade imperialism in, in Asia in one single frame, together where they are normally separate. The intimacies are those between Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Americas, the task to consider the connections, relations, and mixings among the indigenous and colonized peoples otherwise obscured. Intimacies, importantly, has several meanings, in Lowe's heuristic having three key variants. Number one, the dominant, familiar notion of intimacy, which is about closeness, interiority, often with a sexual connotation. Two, a residual notion where the past remains active in the present, haunting it, conditioning what is possible even as it is imagined as long gone. And third, an emergent conception of intimacy, the unfolding and incomplete practices of creation, resistance, survival and solidarity. And a first episode that's dealt with in that chapter concerns the effort contemporaneous with the Haitian Revolution and running up to the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire to introduce coerced labour from China as a buffer class in the West Indies plantation economy. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I now turn to Nivi. Thanks. So, chapter two, autobiography out of empire. Much of the book is dedicated to unpacking and critiquing colonial forms of knowing and representation. In this second chapter, Lowe explores the pitfalls of narrative autobiography, in which the liberal narrative of the self triumphs and occludes other collective forms of authorship and resistance. She does this with specific reference to the exalted autobiography of Equiano, titled The Interesting Narrative of the Life Olado Equiano or Gustavus Vasa, the African Written by Himself. Thank you. Sorry, my audio was breaking up just a little there. Raul. Thanks. Um, chapter three is called A Fetishism of Colonial Commodities. Um, and in this chapter, we are presented with a reading of Thackeray's novel Vanity Fair, um, where Lisa's suggestion is that Vanity Fair portrays rather differently than Marx does the intimacies between colonial commodities in early Victorian households and the imperial relations to Africa, Asia, and the Americas to which they're inextricably tied. The novel, for those of you who've read it, you will know that this is an indictment of English consumer culture and the manner in which it depends on colonial projects in the West and East Indies, as Britain brought a formal end to slavery in the empire and introduced Asian contract labor in the West Indies, expanding free trade imperialism, quote-unquote, to the point where Britain comes to command the conduct of global trade and finance capitalism by the end of the 19th century. Um, much of the reading of the novel proceeds through an account of commodities in this chapter, and we particularly are presented with images of tea, china, hardwood furniture, dresses, fabrics such as chintz and calico, silk, which is then also paired with the hidden history of the opium trade, or perhaps not so hidden, um, if you've been attentive to it. Um, in sum, the chapter wants us to read objects and contexts with attention to what they say about lost histories 
and the layers of occlusion which have resulted in a forgetting of the intimacies of four continents. Thank you. Charmaine. Chapter four, the ruses of liberty, um, really makes a central argument, which is that the language of freedom and free trade, and in particular Mill's conception of liberty, um, provides a ruse for, rather than um, uh, loosening of, the justification for the British expansion of trade and goods and labor. And so what Lowe really argues is that um, free trade and freedom, when delinked from notions of formal liberty, um, allowed a shift in the normative framework of empire from mercantile colonialism to an expanded imperialism in Asia and Africa. Um, and specifically, I think, a shift from direct rule and negative power, that is, to seize, to enslave, to, con to conquer, towards a notion of productive power of, it, of administration. And so one of Lowe's central arguments in the chapter is that mobility provides us much of a part of the rationalization for um, for British imperialism as immobility, carcerality, and other forms of containment. Lowe makes this argument primarily through um, thinking through Mill's conceptions of liberty, where liberalism, she argues, is not a principle of formal equality, but provides an economic rationale for governance, um, political and humanitarian rationales. And uh, she does this by talking about how China plays a pivotal role in both this new imaginary and as a material site of experimentation for imposing global social order. And so here there's some expected forms of imperial productive power that she runs through, such as standard orientalist rhetoric, the increase in debt, and efforts to right the imbalance of trade. But I think centrally one of the interesting um, arguments she makes is that opium plays a key role in rebalancing trade, not just as a commodity, but, but also because it induces docility in its subjects. And so much of the chapter shifts, I think, from chapter three, which focuses on commodities, towards the subjects um, onto whom notions of freedom uh, and power are exercised. Um, I'll quickly say that there are four ways in which she does this. One, through a reading of the maritime realm and its use of the language of free trade. The next, through notions of good governance that were required not um, to rationalize liberalism, but to ne renegotiate hierarchies of colonial difference. The third, through um, trying to turn a socially heterogeneous um, in people into governable, po governable populations, so sorry, through the criminalization of rebellion and threat. Um, and four, through always um, criminalizing unrest, but specifically through the depiction of Chinese as a constitutive exclusion, as always both inside and subjects of law, but also outside and, and, and as immigrants. I'll stop there. Thank you. Joe. Uh, yeah, so I, I got to read chapter, well, get to summarize chapter five, um, which is titled Freedoms Yet to Come. And in chapter five, Lowe gives us an examination of two works, uh, C.L.R. James' is, uh, Black Jacobins and uh, Du Bois' uh, Black Reconstruction. Uh, and that examination considers how these two authors tell different stories um, about how freedom is won, and particularly how it's won by the enslaved. Uh, and in looking at these stories um, and how they're, they're shaped um, and perhaps in some ways limited by their, their own entanglement with dominant uh, Western historical narratives, uh, particularly the dialectical logics uh, that come from Hegel uh, and Marx. Um, and in that, kind of looking at both the ways in which these are, are new and inventive stories and also the way in which they're, they're limited by these philosophies of history, uh, I think Lowe is suggesting that James and Du Bois reveal ways of breaking free from these received philosophies of history um, 
and looks at the possibility of telling different freedom stories, uh, which she thinks is most successful where both authors evidence and appreciation for the untold or insufficiently told story of these sort of intimacies that were created through coloniality. Um, and in particular, she ends with um, a focus on the way both authors engaged with the Asian subjects caught up uh, within European colonialism uh, alongside, but importantly, different to enslaved African subjects uh, that these authors are writing about. And, and seems to be suggesting that there's that's where the, the greatest potential for, for, for telling new kinds of histories lies for these authors. Um, so hopefully that captures the most important bits that are happening in Chapter 5. Thank you. And to just give us an overall summary, I turn to Sergeant. Thanks, Mira. Thanks, everyone, uh, for coming. This is lovely. Um, so we ran out of chapters. I'll talk a little bit about the book itself and what better way to start uh, than with the cover page. Is this the cover page? Yes, it is. Uh, it's Yinka Shonibar's Ship in a Bottle, which was installed 10 years ago on the Fort Plinth in Trafalgar Square. It's the image I personally wanted to have on the cover of my future books, and then I realized it's taken, so thanks a lot, Lisa Lowe. Um, it's probably the best image uh, the author could have picked up for this book. Uh, the Brits know what I'm talking about. Uh, this past week was Trafalgar Day, the 215th uh, anniversary of the famed naval battle. And uh, some of you probably had a non-ironic toast to the immortal memory. I don't know if you did or not. I won't judge you. Uh, that's okay. Non-Brits in the audience might, might wonder, oh, so what is this about? What's going on? Well, the Fort Plinth is arguably the most famous public art commission in the world. It started in 1999 and has already generated more history than Britain could consume in some ways. And you can see why uh, putting uh, cool new artwork next to Nelson's column celebrating his victory is the sort of encapsulation of the new labor's idea of cool Britannia. And uh, Sean Ibarra's ship is uh, the most famous realization of this uh, commission yet. Basically, you have black British artists uh, doing uh, a commission to do an embottled ship, Nelson's HMS Victory, with three dozen large sails made out of um, textiles uh, commonly associated with African dress and symbolic of African identity. But the history of the fabric shows that they were inspired by Indonesian batik design, mass produced uh, by the Dutch and sold uh, in the colonies uh, in West Africa. So that, this is the kind of standard interpreta interpretation. Chapter 5 uh, gives it a much more nuanced interpretation. And, and this is what the author says, well, that's uh, th this exemplifies uh, the history of the present, uh, and that we'll get into the methodology a little bit uh, a little later. But it's the insurrection, as she puts it, of subjugated knowledge of empire, specifically uh, tells a story how liberal modernity uh, was and is predicated on and discursively bound to uh, displacement, quote, displacements and obfuscations that characterize the national and imperial transmission of history. And this is important. Why? Well. Uh, it probes the premise and pitfalls of conceptualizing the intimacies between four continents, given the separate and asymmetrical archives in and through, uh, which uh, we learn to talk about when we teach students about this thing we, we call international relations, and those are settler colonialism in the Americas, as we heard, transatlantic Af uh, African slavery, the East Indies and China trades in goods and services, and then the emergence of European uh, liberal modernity. That's it for me. Thank you. You've all been very disciplined and I'm delighted because now we've had a lovely exposition of the book and its substance and hopefully that will 
allow uh, more people to engage and for us all to sort of um, think with more uh, precision, I would hope. Anyway, so um, with the exposition out of the way, I'd now like to invite the panellists again to offer their reflections and responses to the book, um, sort of five or six minutes each, um, set out some questions, pull out some ideas, and let's go in the order we started with. So, Paul. Thanks, Mira. So, I mean, I was drawn to this book first some years ago, I think by its global sweep by the movement across uh, genres and moments, but especially because of the appeal of the term intimacy uh, to me. And at a past Millennium conference, I told a story on one of the autobiographical IR panels that borrowed from the title to express somehow that proximity, that strange familiarity that resonated with me as somebody who grew up, as I put it in that, at the conjunction of, of three, three empires, born in South Africa to an English father and a Portuguese mother. Uh, during apartheid, I should say. So I wanted to use this opportunity to think a bit more about intimacy, about that term and about its, about its uses. Uh, I said a little at the beginning about the three variants of intimacy that run through the book, the dominant, the residual and the emergent. But beyond that typology, Lowe embraces uh, what she calls the multivalence of intimacy. And I think there are at least seven other overlapping and resonant ways in which the term does work. So first, intimacy is relationality, right? Topics and archives which are others separated can be read together. How, say, is the abolition of slavery linked to the turn towards Chinese indentured labor imported to the plantation yet figured as free? This relationality also dissolves the boundaries of genre so the literature can be read alongside parliamentary records, diaries alongside propaganda, philosophy with anthropology. Second, intimacy folds space. So it allows us to think about disparate scenes together in their shared practices and figures. The outside history, which is inside the history, as Stuart Hall wrote about sugar in the English. The outside history as inside history, we might say. The obscured history of gingham print and Lancashire cotton, of the opium that became interchangeable materially and linguistically with silk. Third, race is intimate. The classifications and boundaries forged in the liberal empire continue to work their effects, an enduring remainder, as Lowe puts it. The political unconscious of European racism was the colonial relations that required race taxonomies. Yet the taxonomies outlived that imperial economy remain a kind of phantasm. So this is intimacy as an aftermath. Fourth, intimacy is subtle power. So here's a quote from page eight. The coloniality of modern world history is not a brute binary division, but rather one that operates through precisely spatialized and temporalized processes of both differentiation and connection, end quote. For example, in the intrusive microphysics of surveillance of gender and sexuality in colonial Hong Kong. Fifth, but intimacy is also a colonial product. As it is said on page 18, the colonial division of intimacy which charts the historically differentiated access to the domains of liberal personhood from interiority and individual will to the possession of property and domesticity. That is to say, there are not just different meanings of the intimate, but our reigning conception of intimacy is inextricably linked with the history of exclusions, extraction, exploitation and bordering, the bourgeois household that depended on the colonial circuit. Sixth, intimacy is insight, we access a reality about how power functions beneath the abstract promises and rhetorics of freedom. 
This is not always perceived directly, can, for example, be accomplished by reading against the grain of the archive with its rhetoric gestures that seem to cover over internal contradictions in the colonial project. And seventh, I think interiority is also hope. So Lowe writes against a practice of mere recuperation and instead seeks what she calls a past conditional temporality, an awareness of what could have been, which I read as the intimacy of imagination. So what comes into view with these differing uses of intimacy? I think a question or challenge that we might be able to come back to through the discussion is about the different valences as they exist in a productive and maybe in some cases a not so productive tension. So to what extent do those residual uh, elements of intimacy, the violent histories which shape the present and the emergent ones, the new unfolding forms of difference or inequality, limit the dominant meaning of relational closeness, trust and self-actualization? The book, I think, is arguably more about the residual, the weight of the imperial on our present, uh, than it is about the emergent or the dominant, and quite explicitly and deliberately. So I guess I wanted to pose the question of what happens to the dominant meaning of intimacy or the wider set of associations around the personal, the private, kin and autobiography, the phenomenological. In chapter one, we are told that the intimacies of desire, sexuality, marriage and family are inseparable from the imperial projects of conquest, slavery, labour and government, which sounds obviously right, but my attention is always caught when I read that things or dimensions or phenomena are inseparable from each other. So one possibility here is that there is something about dominant notions of intimacy that we might want to hold on to or reconfigure as something outside and preserved from the political economy of intimacies, from the governing logic which runs through the book. And in parallel, I think there is a degree to which the analysis of the book does reintroduce distance and set itself apart from intimacy. For example, in refusing to draw an uncomplicated line from John Stuart Mill's time in the East India Company to his ideas on free trade. And then finally, I got to thinking about the danger of intimacy, that element which probably drew me to the book in the first place. And to thinking about how in the last few weeks, I've seen some of the statements on social media from Empire's new apologists doing their hackery about the prevailing sense of Empire as all bad and their plea to reconsider the possibility that the people who engaged in Empire were not, as one of them put it, 100% evil, as if somebody had ever suggested that. But I wonder what's at stake and what the risks are if we attend to a, a sense of intimacy which might involve sympathy and who that sympathy would go to. And so those are just some of the thoughts around that key terminology that, that came up in this uh, amazing opportunity to reread the work. Thank you so much, Paul. Great food for thought. Nivi. Thanks. Let me know if my internet drops out, but as soon as speaking, so maybe mm. that's like a sign or something. Um, anyway, can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Um, so I just want to start by saying that although we are here for critique, I absolutely love the book. Uh, it's so expansive and even magisterial in, in its account of the connections, sort of the resonances and the dissonances, the violence and imbrigation of Asia, Africa, the Americas and Europe. And I'm surprised by how the book manages to present this world history in less than 200 pages without being synoptic or synthetic uh, in its insights. And I really can't think of any other text I've read that does this. Um, I, I felt like each chapter could be a book in it of it in its own right. So 
Um, I, yeah, I just really want to say I really liked it. Um, for me, the book was mostly a critique of liberal genres, forms and textures, and the ways of knowing and remembering that's concretized in disciplinary history, but in our own everyday lives as well. And so some of the most interesting stuff, again, for me, was methodological. The ways in which archives function in the book and were mined for silences, elisions, erasures, as, a, as well as for the cross-fertilization of ideas and covert readings of histories of different spaces. So Lowe reads the India office records alongside circulations of colonial artifacts such as fabrics. A lot of the book then is about practices of reading as not merely methodological, uh, but, but also political, or how those two are always imbricated and interlinked. How we read and then how we come to know and how that knowing then presents a world that we inhabit. Some of this, this stuff for me was also reminiscent of Julieta Singh's critique of the notion of mastery and how mastery itself is a colonial impulse that is reproduced even by anti-colonial scholars and activists. And I like what Lowe does with uh, scholars I've read before who are familiar to us, but then turn some of their, their main ideas or concepts on their heads. So Paul's talked a little bit about residues and Raymond Williams' structures of feelings, and Surgeon mentioned Foucault's subjugated knowledges, but equally Foucault's ideas of governmentality, history of the present. The ways I read, the way I've read those scholars have changed because of this book. Lowe manages to turn some of their insights on their head and shows the limitations while still using them, still deploying their work. I also uh, am, was really interested in some of the stuff around the ports uh, because my new project looks at borders and the fissures and fractures in European colonial rendering of the border and processes of bordering itself. And so Lowe has stuff about the Hong Kong port but also the frontier and these are quite capacious connections that she manages to draw again across the book. Um, I have, I don't, I, I have what I might call a critique, but I think it's a, a tension that I am basically facing in my own work. And this is some, is the tension between universalism and particularity. And I could completely be imputing this to the book. But there's, but it is something I've been wrestling with. So can there be a universal account of the human that unseats thinking of Sylvia Winter here, the overrepresented figure of the man? Um, and starting from hazy or earlier and taking these connections as the bedrock, or is all universalism a priori doomed to fail? And if so, what does that mean for revolutionary political projects? Um, so this is a question I'm interested in and have been talking about with friends. For instance, if we agree that racism, for instance, is not a monolithic homogenous structure and that specificities are important, for instance, of anti-blackness or Islamophobia, then what sorts of projects of solidarity can we aspire to that don't merely fall into liberal allyship? And so there's an implicit critique of structures in the book that I wanted more teasing out and I'd like to talk more about uh, with, with you all. And also, what does this mean to read our own protagonists or our own heroes? So for instance, Du Bois, Sadia Hartman says, uh, was in some ways liberal himself. He had a critique of adultery of women who were acting in certain ways. How do we escape that? Uh, if we are reading Marx and acknowledging his limitations, surely we should do that for other thinkers we've put on pedestals. Likewise, in C.L.R. James's book, Toussaint is, sees himself as a Frenchman. He's connected to France, immersed in European thought. And 
how do we escape the fact that some of these thinkers, some of these heroes are themselves begging to be included in those frames of universality? Okay, I'll end that. Thank you, Nivi, very much. Uh, Raul? Thanks. Um, I think my comments follow on quite nicely from Nivi's. Uh, I agree with a lot of what Nivi was saying. Um, this is an amazing book. It is, it is a deceptively simple book to read because it, on the one hand, its, its vision is truly expansive in the way that it tries to think settler colonialism, slavery, indentured labor, and the development of liberalism in conjunction with each other as part of the same conjuncture. So in a sense, the sweep of the book is enormous. And yet it disavows all intention to mastery, I think, because of a practice of what I think of as metonymic reading, which is to say that nothing is too small for the book to look at. Um, it spends time with you know, pieces of fabric or a piece of furniture as a way of reading the story of this entire conjuncture. And it's this practice, I think, of reading the whole often from a fragment, a small fragment, that I think enables it both to be expansive in its vision without um, avowing a, a desire for mastery or a, or a sense of possession of the world as a whole, which would have been very easy to do precisely when the object of analysis is the imperial system in its entirety. I was really interested in the way, so the, so, so the particular metonyms for liberalism end up being particular kinds of texts, the autobiography, the novel, the philosophical treatise. And one question I had was whether these forms were quintessentially liberal or whether they were in fact more capacious than uh, the text suggests. So is the sort of 19th century bourgeois novel, Victorian novel, or the 20th century Bildungsroman, are these the only forms in which we can think novel? Is, is there something constitutively liberal about these genres that makes them unamenable to, to other kinds of writing? Um, it's an open question. I'm not sure. It, it, it could be that, that that is certainly the direction the, the book wants to take us in. So I have a different um, set of questions to ask about um, ideology and political thought and the directions in which the book might take us when we think about that. The, one set of questions has to do with the book's relationship with Marxism, which is in many ways analogous with the black radical tradition's relationship with Marxism. Um, and I want us to maybe think a little bit about the formation that we're calling black, that Cedric Robinson famously calls black Marxism, and, and after Cedric Robinson, we have been calling black Marxism too. Um, alongside that post-colonial theory, of course, which has always been a very divided house, encompassing within itself readers sympathetic to the Marxist tradition and post-structuralists very unsympathetic to that tradition, um, when, when the book reads C.L.R. James and um, Du Bois, the, the reading tends to emphasize their disjunctures from Marxism, but I found myself wondering about their resonances, actually, with Marx, um, in part because they're not just engaged in a stretching of Marxism, as Fanon famously put it, 
But I think depending on which Marx one is reading, Marx himself engaged in some of that stretching, particularly in his later work. And so I think if, for example, rather than reading the, the big texts, if we were to look at uh, the more marginal Marxist texts, the writings on India and Ireland, uh, or even the much later letters to Russian communists where Marx appears to disavow teleology, I think we get a very different image of Marxism, um, the kind of Marxism that Kevin Anderson explores in Marx on the Margins, which perhaps might help us rethink this relationship between the black radical tradition and, and Marxism, and perhaps accounts for why C.L.R. James and Du Bois found so much in Marx and Marxism um, as they did. Um, staying with the question of ideology, one of the, one of the questions the book left me with was, you know, reading this book in a conjuncture where we're very preoccupied with conflicts and questions around political blackness and Afro-pessimism, I wondered if we would be having the conversations about Afro-pessimism that we currently do if we understood the intimacies of four continents, if we appreciated the fullness of those intimacies, what would this conversation look like? So in that sense, the book for me is not just about what could have been, but also what might be if we appreciated what could have been and what was better than or differently than we currently do. But I also have maybe a contradictory thought, which I'll end with, which is that I felt like the book was straining for a more hopeful way of thinking about these intimacies. And that made me wonder about more uncomfortable kinds of intimacies between four continents, the precisely the kinds of discomforts that have occasioned the discourse of Afro-pessimism. Um, so I was reminded of an article that Neha Shah wrote in The Guardian a few months ago, uh, which, which tries to address the question of why there are so many British Asians in the Conservative Party in, in Britain. And the story she tells is one of um, migration from the Indian subcontinent to East Africa as part of indenture, but in other capacities as well. Um, the, the experience of differential racialization of Indians and black Africans in colonies in East Africa and Southern Africa. Um, that process of racialization is also hugely informed by understandings of caste that South Asians brought with them. And uh, the, the, the combination of caste and race accounts for a very difficult set of political relations that emerges in places like Kenya and Uganda, which ultimately famously results in the ex expulsion of Asians from Uganda to Britain. Um, and in turn, results in, in particular political formations in Britain and particular relationships between those British Asians and the Conservative Party. For me, this tells a more uncomfortable story of the intimacies of three continents in this case, um, which I, I think perhaps this book also provides a stage for thinking about. It's a, a less hopeful, more depressing story, at least in the way that it's currently playing out. But I think it might be important to think about those intimacies as well, alongside the more hopeful, solidaristic intimacies that we um, read in the archive. Thank you so much, Raul. Um, I'll now turn to Charmaine, who I'm unmuting. Um, and she's unmuted. 
Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I, I think a lot of my prepared comments have been sort of touched on in various ways. So I think I'll be pretty quick. Um, I first want to say something that might seem pretty obvious, but um, I read I, I read the book from sort of two standpoints and two fields that I'm in conversation with, one global studies and one American studies, um, in which I think Lisa Lowe's previous work, um, Immigrant Acts, which is her well-known 1996 landmark study about um, the history of anti-Asian immigrant legislation in the United States. So we shift from a book that's sort of more focused on... Um, from you know work that was focused on anti on Asian American legislation in particular to a book that traces the formation of the coolie um, across space, uh, and and she at one point in chapter three says that the coolie was never a people or a legal category but a conglomeration of racial imaginings that emerged worldwide in the era of slave emancipation, a product of the imaginers rather than than the imagined. And I think it helps me to think about the ways in which categories that we typically attach to particular congealments of subjects, so the coolie, um, which we sort of you know reify as an Asian American subject, are actually products of these forms of racial construction that I think both help us to complicate what we think of as American studies and also um, helps us to complicate what we think of as global studies. I'm currently in a global studies department and I think one of the experiences of um, looking at the way that the field intends to articulate itself is that it simultaneously imagines the globe as a everywhere but nowhere without a particular rootedness in, um, uh, so it doesn't want to claim area studies and it also doesn't want to claim a universality and so articulates itself as a sort of global without a particularism or a particularity in the way that Nivi talked about. And I think that the the methodology of intimacy um, as both, you know, a methodology, a structure of feeling, but also a connective infrastructure across continents helps us to think about the ways in which we might think from particular sites without these pretensions to the universal um, that begin from specific subjectivities, but without... Um, reifying congealed forms of what we under, typically understand as racial or cited imaginaries in a particular way. And it helped me to think about um, one of the ways that Huey Newton articulates a, a kind of internationalism in the 1960s, um, that, that internationalism was about an intercommunalism that begins from the intimacies of particular communities um, cited in their, cited in space and place, but then thinking outwards towards um, the ways in which it might build intimacies with other spaces. So Huey Newton, of course, was thinking about this um, from the standpoint of the Black Panther Party, but I think intercommunalism is a useful way for us to think outside of the state, um, outside of um, interregional or uh, not international politics and towards the ways in which solidarities might be built past what we think of typically as the, the reified borders um, of these spaces we are used to thinking about such that we articulate ourselves, right, as a scholar of Southeast Asia or a scholar of um, the Middle East, so on and so forth. The second, I think, um, I took the prompt to, to talk about how this relates to our work um, quite literally, and I think one of the things that Lowe's book does for me, given that I'm a scholar of logistics and the maritime in the, in the current era, is just that I think, you know, um, the articulation of freedom as a guise for a new form of 
um, management of imperialism through productive power was immensely productive. And Lowe argues, I think, and takes care to argue that it is never the case that older forms of colonialism, like slavery and conquest in, in its sort of directly coercive forms, were necessarily replaced by imperial productive power, but that these two coexisted alongside each other, and that the later articulations of things like free trade and liberty become ways to accommodate um, and combine earlier projects of conquest with new articulations of mobilities. And I think here mobilities helps us to think broadly, not just across the physical and material mobilities of commodities across supply chains, but also the mobilities of power and the ways in which they rearticulate and are reshaped um, um, through different languages of rule. And so laissez-faire economics plays as much of a role in exercising a particular kind of imperial power as does the articulation of territorial rule um, through this kind of dialectic um, emergence of a, of a relationship between circulation and containment. Um, and I think this is helpful because I, in a period of rising fascist ascendancy, which we are all within, we have circled back to a concern with the direct application of coercive power in some ways. But the kind of crucial connective tissue that Lowe really helps us to think about is about these continuities between um, you know, old colonialism of conquest that never really disappeared and the intimacies of things like commodity trade and the policing of colonial difference. And I'll say quickly that those two articulations are particularly helpful in a time of abolition as we think about the ways in which um, policing reproduces um, reproduces itself uh, through anti-Black racism, um, and in the ways that I think, particularly in the COVID era, we have um, heard over and over again a way in which economic mobility has continued to be prioritized as a proxy for the well-being of the population. So over and over again, as people are dying in hospitals and alone um, in their homes, we are told that the circulation of the economy needs to be prioritized over health. And um, alongside it comes these you know, narratives of, about the ways in which we have to open up economies in order to then um, facilitate what is essential to our well-being. And in the, in, in the way in which this becomes articulated in its neoliberal form, um, we have a, an image in which um, the circulation of things and the circulation of finance matters more than the circulation of people, in a sense. Um, but I think this brings me, perhaps, to where I wanted to pose a question, which is that, like Raoul, I was straining towards the end um, to think about what intimacy produces in terms of a politics, or what it calls us toward in, in terms of thinking about um, various orientations to the world that we are given. Um, and at, at various points in the book, Lowe is very careful and um, careful to talk about the ways in which the specter of rebellion and unrest from various populations always haunts the narrative of imperial power. So imperial power is never um, itself complete without um, the effort to deal with these fears of colonial unrest in some way. But I wonder if at the end we might think about what it might look like to center that constant persistence of revolutionary rebellion um, instead of centering the question of imperialism. And I think this is where intimacies might be most productive in helping us to think about imperial power as something that's always a counter-revolutionary force. 
In other words, that um, imperialism is never uh, applied from above without um, the constant threat of, uh, the constant presence of uh, labor unrest, social rebellion, uh, and various forms of disruption from below. And for me, at least, I think thinking about that as a counter-revolutionary prospect rather than one that is solely imperial um, helps us in some way to remember that imperial power is in some way always reacting um, to the assertion of sovereignties from indigenous peoples, to the assertion um, of a refusal to be uh, colonized from the colonies. And this helps me, I think, it, it allowed me to think about something that Manu Karuga calls counter-sovereignty, in which um, the colonization of indigenous peoples is only ever counter-sovereign, or the American imperial state is only ever counter-sovereign to the already existing sovereignty of um, of native populations. And so, you know, perhaps an invitation towards thinking about the politics of intimacy in the terms of counter-revolution help, uh, are, are helpful to me. Sorry, I went on. Thank you very much, Charmaine. Uh, everyone is being extremely disciplined, so we've got lots of time. That's good. Uh, Joe. Um, great. Uh, thanks for the chance to uh, to offer some responses. Um, I think I come at the text slightly uh, differently than the rest of the panel, just because of the that, that I think of myself as doing political theory first and foremost. Um, and so, on one level, I, I, as, a, as a kind of history uh, of, of the colonial period, um, I was reading it very much as an interested non-expert uh, and felt like I learned lots and lots uh, from it. Um, so in our, in our comments, we were prompted to speak to, to kind of three prompts, and I'm going to stick to that relatively closely. Uh, and the first is thinking about how the book speaks to, to my own work or my own teaching. And one thing I really appreciated from the text was the way in which it contributes to what I would see as a kind of rewriting uh, of, of political geographies uh, that we use, um, and even, even how we understand colonial geographies. Um, and I think it helps us see our current world, in a sense, outside of um, the, the geographies of nation and empire that are very much inherited from, from, from colonial modernity. So, um, yeah, I think it's, for me, it's, it, I take it as a contribution to, to kind of developing a different geographical imaginary and thinking about the past present and then uh, and then the future um i also really appreciated the way and this is partly because it confirmed something i i was wrestling with in my own mind um and also reminded me i basically stole it from du bois <laughs> um which is thinking about ideas of race but also colonialism and slavery um that that low traces as distinctly modern right these are these are modern concepts modern practices they are not primeval. They're not something that we're, that we're overcoming from the past. They're something we've created. Um, and it made me think about, in essence, the challenge that we have in trying to overcome these ideas uh, and their effects is an attempt to unlearn a forcibly universalized idea uh, and to unmake a globally institutionalized um, uh, organizing principle of racial hierarchy. Right. And that might seem obvious, but it's 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 I don't know I found it an illustration of, of, of exactly why that's the case. Um, and it strikes me as, as continuing to be very important. We're trying to unlearn a global modern idea. Um, and that's that's big and difficult. And this book, I think, really contributes to understanding how big and difficult that is um, a task. 
Um, and I also really appreciated uh, the way in which, at least for me, it, it encouraged me to think differently about past and present. Um, and the way in which we need to also, to be able to do that, we have to challenge um, particular academic methods and boundaries and also some of kind of the dominant ways of thinking about these categories. So um, I think that that goes back to what Paul was talking about with the idea of, of, of intimacy and its various um, versions that it emerges in the book, um, which I found all very enlivening. Uh, we're also asked to think about what challenges uh, we might pose. And I think for me, one of the elements that I found, I don't want to say that it was it was missing. I don't want to demand that the book was different than that has a different topic or focus than it does. But it struck me that um, class might need might usefully be more integrated into the story that's being told. And I have to say, uh, this is based on reading chapters one and five very closely, and unfortunately having to spend less time with the middle chapters. Um, but it struck me as important because of the way in which class is distinct, but not separate from race. And I was thinking particularly of the way in which the ordering between white and black um, of that fundamental racial hierarchy, there, there's ordering of that on the white side of, of that disjunction. Uh, and partly I'm thinking of, uh, again, as a theorist who occasionally dabbles in trying to read up on history, um, Nancy Eisenberg's history of, of class um, in the U.S. starting from its colonial origins, and particularly the way in which the there was a, a class of kind of what we would think of as perhaps working class or the, a peasant class, but she highlights the way in which they were discussed in terms of garbage or waste people um, and were seen as, uh, in a sense, fertilizer for the colonial world, at least in, in the North American colonies. Um, and it's not to say that they, they need to be a, a focus, but rather that attending to the, the, the straightation in, in that whiteness, it helps to explain also the, the, the balancing between the black and white of, of the color hierarchy. Um, and it just struck me in something that was looking so much at the intimacies and details that seemed to be slightly missed. And that might be partly because the focus in the sections I read more on um, the Caribbean, um, whereas this, this particular story I'm thinking of is, is more located in the, in the U.S. Um, context, the U.S. colonial context and obviously the U.S. Um, uh, context of slavery. Um, but I think, I think it's a more general uh, question, and it's just a, a question of why, not why isn't it there, but could we usefully understand uh, how this works, how racialization in this time period works by also understanding the way in which, on, again, on the white side of that dichotomy, there is, it's the class is doing important work uh, to secure the superiority of, of, of whiteness. Um, the other challenge I, I I wanted to pose um, has come out more clearly now in the discussion, I think, which is it seems to me there's some tension between the overt methodology using intimacies. Um, and um, Rahul, at one point you talked about reading uh, reading sort of a world history from, from fragments, which I thought was a really lovely way of putting it. And those are definitely for me the, the most uh, enlivening parts of the, of the text. In the background, and I say in the background because I was checking the index and Foucault isn't discussed much. He shows up in the footnotes and he's definitely there in the citations. But there are some, there's some Foucauldian language that started to come out. And it struck me as very strongly, particularly with liberalism. Uh, liberalism kind of sits like a black box um, in, in some of the narrative here. 
Um, and it's not to say this needs to be a study of liberalism, but it's, it's this question of, is the liberal colonial world as, as coherent uh, as it's presented? It strikes me that liberalism is, is more internally contested and contradictory. Um, the UK, as a key figure in, in, in many of the stories being told here, is, is more fractured and contested. Um, and I'll get to why I think that might be important. But for now, it just struck me as a kind of tension. There was this, this lovely work of you're reading things like the, uh, the fabric from, uh, I forgot the book in front of me here, right? The fabric on the sails um, that uh, Sir Jan mentioned. Um, but then also sometimes liberal colonial modernity is doing stuff. Um, and I always get a bit uncomfortable when big ideas are given this, this active force because they're not doing stuff. Something else is doing this stuff. And so thinking about sort of what are the specific practices at work? Who are the specific agents at work? Um, yeah, it seemed like it was pushing a kind of, there was a tension there in the methodology for me. Uh, and the last thing, which hopefully I've got a bit of time for, is thinking about what um, ideas uh, it opens up. And, I mean, for me, I think the question that it opened up, particularly reading chapter five, um, which it kind of relates to what I was just saying, the question I wanted to, 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 to pull out is why... Why present James and Du Bois as first working within and against the the frame of, of, of the philosophy of history of Marx or um, a kind of European uh, liberal understanding of the subject? Now, certainly, I think they are working against that, but it's a question of, of, of why the priority. Um, and I think we can maybe use the language of intimacy here, right? So it's definitely, I think, right that there is a kind of intimacy for both these thinkers with the very world they're kind of pushing against. Um, but if we want to think critically about that and uh, think about this, this present that didn't come to be, is, is that the best place to start? And I think maybe the, the frustration in its most concrete form is in chapter five, there's over 20 pages, which is a kind of account of Marx um, and an account of Hegel, which is, is, is certainly interesting, but it's sort of something we've seen before. Uh, and then the analysis of Black Jacobins and Black Reconstruction is then shoved into 20 pages. Um, and I found myself wanting more of that. But then also thinking about what are the other frames of reference? What are the other ideas that are at work here in, in James and Du Bois, their work? And, and some it's, it's touched on, but I found myself thinking, well, why didn't we start there? Um, why didn't we start someplace else? Uh, knowing Du Bois better, I was thinking, as, as Paul was talking uh, and, and reminding me of the, the, the place of intimacies in the book, um, in his own work, he, he draws on those intimate sources. Um, I'm thinking of uh, you know, the way in um, Souls of Black Folk, he talks about um, the sorrow songs uh, of the enslaved. And, and for him, the songs of his, of his past, of his church, of his childhood are important for thinking about the world. Uh, in other sections, he talks about his, his, his grandmother, who, who herself was enslaved. And so those are, are, are clearly very important starting points for him. Um, so why start again with Marx and Hegel? Um, it's a crude way of putting the question, but that's the kind of thing it opened up for me. Where do we want to start if we want to think differently? Sorry, thank you, Joe. Um, I'll now turn to uh, Sir Jan. Um, and I'd like to invite all of the 
audience members to also put contributions, comments, questions in the chat box. These can be uh, interventions, they can be asking for clarifications and so on, uh, anything you like. Uh, Sergen. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, uh, Mira, again. Um, so since this is the Millennium Conference, I thought maybe we should uh, think back to another one, or at least a Millennium uh, special issue from 1994. It was prompted by uh, Justin Rosenberg's critique, one of the many critiques of international relations theory, some of you will remember it, uh, for where, where, in which we called for a new international imagination as a way of improving Anglo-American IR at the time. And the piece in this 1994 issue generated a lot of debate uh, by men such as uh, Marion Frost, Steve Smith, uh, Mark Neufeld, I'm forgetting some, um, David Campbell, uh, uh, Fred Halliday. It was interesting uh, to reread it after all these years. And um, the argument was that IR uh, needed to be better grounded in substantive problems, focused on historical understanding of the social world as a totality. And this debate, as, as some of us know or participated in it, uh, has been repeated in various forms, uh, uh, sometimes with the same protagonists. Conclusions tend to be similar. We need more ambitious sociological and historical interrogations of the international. And the, the conclusion always brings up the same question, yeah, okay, but how do we do this in a book or a PhD dissertation? Well, the methodological and epistemological challenges are huge. Uh, how, how do you analyze the international and its totality, right? Uh, but not, not perhaps impossible. One answer is, I, I'm happy to say, this book, uh, Lowe's book, uh, it's the sort of uh, creative, uh, relational, connected, and indeed interdisciplinary account uh, that we could work with uh, and, and use as a, as a model. And so I want to talk about the methods too. Uh, so Loeb describes her methodology uh, as critical genealogy of liberalism. That's on page uh, 137. She also says that it's a simultaneously a genealogy of colonial divisions of humanity. So we can call these genealogy one and genealogy two. Uh, I, that's how I see them. And I agree with Nivi uh, and Rahul and Charmaine and Joe about the usefulness of this method for learning and unlearning things, uh, in terms and also in terms of their ramifications for politics, uh, and also practical politics. Uh, genealogy, Foucaultian genealogy, is historical and inventive. It's a mode of analysis that helps us map out uh, the play of competing forces that produce narrative of progress and modernity, and so we can criticize it in ways we wish. So genealogy one, I think, is, is, uh, is very helpful uh, and, and really, really works well. Uh, so the, the genealogy of, of liberal modernity, it's meant as a corrective to modern sociological, uh, but also conventional IR understandings of the modern liberal Western uh, European nation state. Yes, there's such a thing, but uh, uh, it's not, it, it did not develop the way, you know, some of our old textbooks say, uh, say it's, it developed. It developed imperially, that is, as an effort to uh, manage uh, colonial enterprise. Uh, so Europe, as Paul uh, explained this really, really well, uh, is intimately connected to Western Africa, Caribbean, and East Asia. And this, this uh, Lowe's metaphor of intimacy works really, really well. Uh, and so that's genealogy one. Genealogy two. Uh, colonial divisions of humanity raises questions for me. And I'll just mention one, uh, periodization, right? Why, why do we focus on the late 18th century and early 19th century? I mean, I see the good reasons for genealogy one, but for genealogy two, 
it, it raises questions for me. Uh, why? Well, uh, we could say that uh, these uh, colonial divisions started earlier, right? Yeah, I agree with Joe, what he was saying. Uh, absolutely true. Race is modern. But that still can take us to what Enrique Dussel calls the long 16th century, right? Uh, so the, the conquest of the Turtle Island, uh, North America, actually predates, uh, has its antecedent in, in the conquest of Al-Andalus, uh, or the Reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula. And, 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 and in, in fact, this kind of throws Foucault uh, off uh, in his understanding of uh, so-called uh, race wars, as he calls them. Uh, scientific racism in the 19th century uh, was, in fact, a resignification of the old European, uh, or, or rather, Christian European religious uh, theological racism of, of people without a soul uh, in the 16th century. This has off, obviously, with the big, uh, uh, with, with, with the settlement, uh, colonial settlement of, uh, of the Turtle Island, but actually it also uh, has connections to the, the conquest of Al-Andalus. Uh, and so this is important, uh, when, the, the way we understand genealogy of racism as a, as a, as a, modern, as a modern thing. Um, the, you could say the foundation of, 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 of racism uh, has, has dual roots. Um, so so that something, uh, that, that's something I, I wanted to throw out, not as a critique, but just a, a, as, a, as another thing to think about. And, and I should say that um, there are many genealogies of IR now. Uh, I think Sylvia Winther uh, was one of the first. Cornell West in 1982, probably you know, first consciously uh, described genealogy, uh, all the way to Barnard Hess's work today, and there's so many uh, excellent uh, works of genealogical genealogical works on, on race and racism. And IR, I should say, is is, uh, is getting ever better and and kind of uh, more more savvy the way it approaches it uh, approaches uh, genealogy. So so there's all kinds of interesting dialogues we could have with Lowe's book uh, in our uh, uh, interdiscipline, I should say. All right, thanks. Um, thank you very much, Surgeon. Um, uh, one of the panellists has nudged me to see if I want to say anything about the book, but of course you've all covered everything that I had planned to say already. Um, maybe that's not quite right. Um, so I also really enjoyed the book. Um, I'll try and be a bit more critical. I did really enjoy the book. It was like putting on a pair of warm socks on one level, right? Um, and I mean that both... Um, warmly and maybe a bit critically as well, um, that the arguments, the fundamental arguments were familiar to me. So if you've been reading around race, modernity, coloniality, empire, liberalism, um, with Acing Meta, who's of course cited in the book, and others, then the close relationship between liberalism and empire and liberalism and colonialism, I think, are relatively um, well understood. What I really love about this book is that it elaborates these in a very intimate and um, thoughtful and productive and empirically kind of rich way. So even though I knew sort of the argument, let's say, about Mill and the East India Company and about the relationship between colonial counterinsurgency and um, ideas of liberal um, freedom and the stratification of humans that goes into that, um, I found the way in which it was worked out very, very kind of compelling. Um, and I also really enjoyed the fact that by the end of the book, there is a kind of hope. There is that 
past conditional of, hey, we have forgotten about these intimacies and we do forget about these intimacies. Um, and there is a potentiality there for a sort of recuperative or a maybe a commonality that we can use to deconstruct or resist empire. And that is important against what we might call both the sort of right-wing understanding of um, the separateness of races and peoples and the irrelevance um, of empire to the present, and also the sort of a kind of crude nativism, and notwithstanding Raoul's important comments about anti-blackness. And I don't want to, those are sort of caricatures, but there is this maybe hopefulness that somewhere we can connect in the middle. Um, but I wasn't sure, and like Paul, just kind of thinking about the idea of intimacy as also troubling. Um, if we dig into it, then intimacies are troubling. We had this round table this morning on the ethics of detachment. And in some respects, it was pushing the opposite way. It was like, you know, how can we get out of each other's faces a little bit? How can we make space to breathe? How can we respect each other with, with distance? Um, intimacy is, yes, it can be solidaristic, but it can also be very exploitative and oppressive, or it can simply smother what else there might be. Um, so on the one hand, I, I kind of, I'm an optimist and I want to hold on to that. And I do believe that there's a, the nature of political solidarity has to be optimistic, right? It has to be born out of some kind of commonality. Um, but on the other hand, um, sometimes making space for the separate is, is a necessary kind of move. And I think this is where, when we see projects like the Free Black Universities and so on, making one's own space for one's own presence without the constant drum of we're all connected, we're all together, we're all intimate, you're combined here. Um, is helpful. Now, this isn't necessarily a criticism of the book because I still think the dominant understanding of liberalism and empire and modernity um, are ones that need to be corrected, and I think the book does that well. But I assume the millennium audience is kind of familiar with this, and I think we need to ask ourselves two things. One, whether it's actually at a philosophical or an ideational plane that we can un unpick this, and second, whether it's the question of intimacy itself that needs to be needs to be troubled um and so i think we can maybe pull at some of those those threads there maybe i'll ask the panelists if you want to say anything to each other and each other's reading i mean one of the problems of all being such good mates is that you all kind of tend to think in similar ways but i can see Raul has unmuted himself so i'm going to invite him in to speak i just to say i think that maybe we in, in emphasizing how big the scope of the book is, maybe we haven't uh, focused enough on what is actually quite specific about the book, which is that it's about the transition, or not transition, that's the wrong word, but the moment when slavery has been abolished formally and indentured labor has begun as a practice. And it's trying to bring into relief the figure of the Chinese coolie as, as this sort of... Uh, as an index for all of the things that are going on in this moment. And that accounts, I think, for the choice of the time period, for the texts that are chosen, for the particular debates that are examined. Uh, in that sense, I see the book as doing something analogous to what Saidia Hartman does in Scenes of Subjection, 
which is, you know, the aftermath of a formal legislative moment in the United States. But this book is doing it in relation to a different geographical scope of reference um, and, and some other developments. So I think we shouldn't lose sight of the specificity of the book, even while acknowledging how wide-ranging its themes and preoccupations are. Yeah, and, and I think that... Um... That emphasis on coolitude as that sort of interstitial space is something that we haven't actually explored enough within our literatures and the use of kind of buffer populations and, stratif- and in stratification as a technique of governance. Actually, what I got, and just to maybe come back on what Joe was saying, um, is that this thing, this edifice that we call liberal colonial modernity is extremely opportunistic. And you can see it in like its invention of these little laws. Oh, these people can do this and these people can do this and the police can do this. And, you know, and um, it makes me think about... Surgeon's question is why the specificity of the liberal dynamics of these things? Maybe there is a grander picture here. Maybe Maybe the master villain, if you like, isn't liberalism, but is something else. I mean, just on that, on that point, Mary, since I haven't seen anyone jump in, uh, it gets to the heart of one of the questions I had about the methodology, which I didn't, no, no, I didn't articulate particularly well, but isn't, isn't kind of the point that there's not a villain, right? And But the problem is the, the language that's used keeps suggesting villainy, but the villainy of strange things. So I was just going back, one of the things that, and I don't want to pick this out unfairly, but it's where she's talking about autobiography and Aquino's um, autobiography. And this is from page 50. The exemplary tale of individual freedom had the power to defer the large-scale transformation of slavery as a collective condition in the empire. And I can read that charitably, but that autobiography didn't have that power, right? Um, and, and, and that's what I get, the, the issue I take with what I mean by like, there's not a villain there. Um, and yeah, it just, it just made me think of that. And, and I appreciate that, you know, it's not explicitly saying that that's how these things work, but there's something in the, in the language. And that's why I said that I found there was a tension uh, in the book between language where the, you know, liberal colonial modernity definitely does this thing, um, and then you get into the intricacies of it. And I kept finding myself like, oh, can we start with the intricacies as opposed to the construction of the villain and then turning to the fragments to reread the world? What happens if we stop believing in the villain? I mean, essentially, it's the same question I put to Nick Cernicek years ago. Like, what if capitalism isn't a great big monster, right? <laughs> what if, unfortunately, it's just some, some terrible shit that we do and we can't stop doing, right? Um but that's, that's, that's a, so just this question of can we start with the fragments without creating the villain? Um, I don't know if we can, right? It's something I do in my own work, right? I'm in, in the midst of a project about liberal global justice, and I'm constructing a liberal villain. <laughs> so I say it with complete sympathy for it. I don't know how we stop doing that. No, and I think, I mean, the, the power of the book is that um, because you see those resonances between the different spaces and the, the mobility of governance and the um, ways in which techniques in one area are picked up and used elsewhere and, you know, that kind of circulation of people and ideas and things, I think there is, it's not wrong to say that there is a, not omnipresent, but multi-present dynamic um, and 
it speaks a lot to how we've understood histories of counterinsurgency and, you know, the mobility of counterinsurgency practice traveling around the world. And I like that the, the work kind of stitches that together. Um, but yeah, is it always the same kind of dynamic driving, driving things? And I suppose the ask, the other thing that I would ask, um, and maybe I'll ask others to comment on this. I don't know whether you guys had this feeling, but I sort of had the feeling that there was maybe a recuperative possibility for, uh, in Du Bois's words, the yellow, black and brown peoples of the world to find a uh, redemption in their shared history. But I was wondering about the white, like, is there, is the potential for white redemption in here? If not, what is, if not, why not? And if so, what does it look like? Um, Because, okay, there are kind of glimpses, very slim glimpses of the, some solidarity between the Chinese coolies and the um, labourers and uh, the, and the uh, enslaved Africans in the West Indies. But um, are there any other kinds of relations that are possible, um, particularly between people on the other side of that, on that divide? And it's OK if there's no response to that, guys. <laughs> Thanks, though. Thanks for leaving me hanging. That's brilliant. Thank you all very much. You've been a fabulous audience. And um, we will be putting this up on the Disorder of Things as a podcast. Uh, Great to see you all. And we will see you all very soon at the next panel, I hope.